Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Greetings fellow time travelers. Always glad to have you with me again as we journey through space and time together. Before we get started on today's episode, I need to say I want to say a big thanks to all the people who show their support for the podcasts by subscribing to my Patreon site. It's the money from Patreon that makes the rest of the podcast possible. You know, the love letters are and always will be free. That is all driven by the Patreon site. So if you're a member already, a gargantuan thanks. If you're not and you'd like to become a member, go to patreon.com, search for me by name, Neil Oliver, sign up and become a monthly or a, an annual member. It's cheaper if you sign up for the whole year at once. You get access to weekly question and answer sessions, which are great fun. You ask questions, I answer them. Vodcasts, podcasts, the, the works. Uh, anyway, it'd be great to see you there. Uh, you'd be joining a family, a community of like-minded, inquiring, questing, curious types. Okay, that's the advert over. It's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine, set off on the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The mighty men who rule hold sway in the land of the Slavs, and it becomes known as Russia in their honour. One of their leaders becomes bored of his pagan ways and wants a new path to follow. Emissaries are sent out to the great religions to gather knowledge and the major faiths are put on show. The choice made will go on to affect hundreds of millions of people down through history, right up to the present day. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. In the last episode, a regal king was grabbed by his foot and literally upended. Which moment in history are we heading to this week? Morning, Paul. Well, in this episode, we're skipping forward uh, in time to a story that straddles really across the, the 9th and the 10th centuries. It's one of the tantalising, fascinating what-if moments of history. We're travelling with Russian emissaries to what was then called Constantinople, and they're on a mission to assess the world's leading religions, Islam, Judaism, Roman Christianity and Eastern Christianity. This week, we're walking beneath the towering, ornate dome in the breathtaking Church of San Sophia to see what they have to offer. We are in, uh, well, specifically, we're in the Church of San Sophia, in Constantinople, that place which is now Istanbul, and uh, it's obviously it, it was Constantinople for the longest time, being named for the Roman Emperor Constantine, uh, who we've met before, the one who was hailed as Emperor in York, 
uh, by his part of the army, and you know, then he embarked on his decades-long campaign to secure himself as Roman emperor. But one of his achievements or, was to establish uh, a capital of the of the empire, the Roman Empire, in the east, in the in what had been Byzantium, which, which continued to be Byzantium. But the city was named for him after his death, Constantinople. Uh, and we are with, in particular, the Rus, who are from Sweden. And they are, Rus is a slightly mysterious word, R-U-S, pronounced Rus. And it was not a name they took upon themselves. It was one of those names that was applied to them by the people they encountered. And it means something like the men who row, because they were Vikings. And they appeared amongst those people who described them in their longships. They had left their homeland in Sweden in the longships. They had sailed east through the Baltic, the Baltic Sea, and then they penetrated the mainland via the great rivers, the Volga, the Volkov, and whatever. And the people that saw them arrive, these big, aggressive <laughs> men, called them the Rus. So that's that's where we are. We're with the Rus, and we're in we're in Constantinople, Istanbul. This is a place that I'm particularly fond of and certainly moved by Istanbul. I encountered this whole story that we're gonna that we're gonna do today. This this love letter is a is specifically a product of a bit of filming that I did years ago. We, we were following in the footsteps of the Vikings all over all over Europe. We told the story of how they encountered Britain and Ireland and Orkney and Shetland and then we went into Europe. But we also uh, we followed them, we followed the Swedish Vikings into Russia, into the place that becomes Russia. And we were based around uh, St. Petersburg. It was a difficult city and it was uh, it was quite gloomy and glum. It was striking, I mean, it was a very beautiful city, but it was quite difficult. Uh, and we were mostly, anyway, out in the, the rural. You know, we left the city behind because we were looking for, you know, ancient ancient places, ancient sites associated with the Swedish Vikings. And the weather was bad, and it was it was it was difficult. And then we we left there, and we flew uh, into Istanbul. And arriving in Istanbul was it was as if somebody had opened the sunroof to let the sky and the sunlight in. We were suddenly in what felt like a Mediterranean city, full of lovely people. <laughs> I don't know, somehow they were all smiley and everyone was, everyone seemed to be much more relaxed. It's, it's a good few years ago now uh, and we spent about, about a week in Istanbul and I went to the Hagia Sophia, as they call it, the, the Church of San Sophia. It's now a, a mosque, obviously it was trans, transformed into a mosque in 1453 when when Constantinople was taken by the Seljuk Turks, but it's, it's mosque or church, it's a magnificent building and we encountered the story of, of the Swedish Vikings there because they became, uh, in time, there the were Vikings who were, uh, they were called the Varangian Guard. They were the specialist bodyguard of the of the emperor in the east. That was how embedded they became. And uh, we were in the, in the church of San Sofia and famously there's a bit of graffiti scratched into a bit of the marble of a balustrade on the, like the first floor gallery of the, of the church. There's a bit of, in runes, scratched in like with the point of a knife. And it's, it says something to the effect of, I was here. You know, it's classic Viking graffiti. And anyway, it, it's such a, it was such a fantastic time. 
in Istanbul. It was so beautiful. A, a, a twinkling, sparkling, historical place. Everywhere you turned, there was ancient history. It was, it was wonderful. So this story, is. It, I, I, every time I think about it, every time I think about it, I can almost smell Istanbul. I can almost, you know, that hot, spiced, fragrant smell of, of, the, of the city and the market stalls and all the rest of it. So, if that's by way of an introduction... The event, it circles around the arrival for the first time as far as history is concerned of some of the Rus in Constantinople. Picture the scene, if you will. It's this end of the 9th century and a party of Rus have arrived like delegates in Constantinople. They've never been there before. In fact, they've never been anywhere like Constantinople before. Not sure how many of them there were, but a small group of, of Swedish Vikings. And they're, they're welcomed in Constantinople by Basil II, who's the emperor at that point. And he receives them in the sacred palace and winds them and dines them. Next day, they go to, they're taken into the church of San Sophia. Now, this thing had been raised four and a half centuries before Okay, it was already an, a very old, if not ancient, structure long before the, the Rus ever arrived. And if you've ever been in the Hagia Sophia, it's extraordinary. It's still breathtaking now. And, and yet it was raised by the Emperor Justinian in the 300s. You know, it's, it's unimaginably old, and yet it still has that power to take away the breath of 21st century people who are used to you know, skyscrapers and all the rest of modernity. Extraordinary thing. And so when you, you try and put yourself in that moment, these men, when they stepped inside, what it must have felt like, there was nothing remotely comparable in the world that they had come from. You know, the sheer scale of it, you know, the architectural wonder of it, the magnificence of it, they would have seen nothing before that could have been on that scale. Inside, they encountered the patriarch, which is to say the leader of the faith, like the Pope, the patriarch in the east of the Eastern Church. And they watched uh, a full pontifical service, right? All the bells and whistles. Maybe it was scheduled anyway, or maybe it was all put on to knock these rubes <laughs> out of their socks. Who knows? But it was, you can imagine, incense, you know, so the heavy, the blue smoke of incense hanging in the air, the, the scent of it. Uh, there were choirs in the galleries. When you step inside, it's a vast open space up to the domed ceiling. But there are galleries around, you know, at, at, at higher levels. And there were choirs up there, so there must have been, it would have been like angels were singing. And the top of the dome, the, the, looking up at the dome, they must have felt as if they were looking up at heaven or, or the sky or, or, or whatever. So incredible. And everywhere they looked, there'd be uh, gold, gold decoration everywhere, jewels everywhere, people dressed in silks. The whole works. This is the legend. You can imagine. This is this is the legend of, of that first experience because, you know, they're described as poor country folk. Hard men, you know, had lived hard lives and they walk into this sophisticated you know, it's the it's it's country mice encountering city mice. It's that story again. So, you know, yada yada. Maybe it happened that way, maybe it didn't, but it's a good story. So these Rus who were in Constantinople are descendants of Vikings. When did the Vikings first start making an impact in Russia? 
or the land that would become known as Russia? Um, around 860, let's say, there or thereabouts, when you know others of their sort, you know, Norwegian Vikings and Danish Vikings, whatever, were tormenting England, uh, tormenting France, Francia, the land of the Franks. While all that was going on, these Vikings from Sweden established a base. They came up a river and they established a base at what is now Novgorod. There's a, a book that was written, you know, more or less, you know, you know, around that time. It's called the Russian Primary Chronicle, and it was it was composed. It was written by a monk called Nestor, and it tells a story that that plays we- very well for the Rus. Okay, artistic license and all that. Uh, it describes, amongst other things, that there was no well. The Rus arrived in, in amongst a Slavic population, Slavs. That 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 territory had been broadly settled and colonised by people of, of, of Slavic descent or people that we would describe as Slavs and according to Nestor there was no law among them but tribe against tribe discord then ensued among them and they began to war one against another and they realised that you know they were in a pretty miserable situation you know to constant internecine strife um, and they said to each other let us seek who may rule over us and judge us according to the law now, it's pretty hard to imagine any group of people actually thinking that, far less saying it. Let us seek who may rule over us and judge us according to the law. But anyway, th- th- there's the story, and it's a good story. And they send people out in all directions, and some of their some of their uh, emissaries reach Sweden. They, they reach the homeland of the Rus. This is this is according to the story. This is before this is before any Rus ever came. And they tell the people in Sweden, our land is great and rich, but there is no order in it. Come to rule and reign over us. Right? What an offer. Uh, and if it sounds a bit much, it's because it almost certainly is. It's just, it's just history being written on behalf of the victors or the, or the dominant party once again. In any event, according to Nestor's chronicle, three brothers come, three, three Rus. Uh, Rurik is the eldest, and he establishes this base at Novgorod. There's Sinius. He establishes a place that is called uh, Belozero. And Truvor, not Trevor, Truvor uh, establishes Izborsk, right? So there's three brothers, and they've got three kind of uh, you know nodes in that in that territory. And this is uh, the 800s. Yeah, this is this is somewhere between somewhere in the second half of the ninth century, uh, because you know for other reasons it, it would appear that there are there are Swedish Rus at Novgorod, you know by by around 860. So it, it's happening then or then about. Uh, Sinius and Truvor die. Okay, they don't last long, and so Rurik, the big brother, it's like three billy goats, gruff, except it doesn't work out well. R- Rurik is left alone. He's the sole ruler now of this Slavic population who are waiting to be set on the path of righteousness, apparently. Uh, so he moves. He's, he's initially at Novgorod, and he moves to the place that eventually becomes Kiev. Okay, you know, so the the Kiev that, that's so often in the in the headlines now, and it's on the Dnieper River. These people are established, right? You know, at the top of the hierarchy, there are these Swedish Vikings that have, have established some kind of control by whatever means. And subsequently, Nestor's Russian chronicle depicts this, them having been invited in. It's all too convenient for words. The fact of the matter is, they are there in that part of the world by the second half of the ninth century. The other fact that, that, that cannot be denied is that Rus is the root of Russia. Whenever they came, 
however they achieved dominance, their name becomes Russia. Russia comes from the Rus, which is remarkable. But let's let's imagine more realistically that, that over a period of time, Swedish Vikings had, had come into that territory, down the rivers, in their long ships, and they brought with them all sorts of stuff that the locals there were interested in. They brought steel swords, obviously Vikings, you know, warlike lot. They brought amber, which is very beautiful, a product of, you know, sap from trees that, that becomes hardened, and then over a geological process it becomes this beautiful golden substance that can be carved. They brought walrus ivory, birds of prey for hunting, hawks and the like. They brought honey, they brought beeswax, and they brought fur. And they also, significantly, really, they brought slaves, because the Vikings were in the habit of taking people from wherever, people from England, people from Scotland, people from Francia. They took them and they sold them to whoever wanted them. They also bought slaves, you know, from the locals. So they were trading, buying and selling human people. And what they really coveted was silver, silver coins that were minted by the Abbasid Caliphate, who we've already met as well, Muslim Caliphate. They had supplanted, replaced the Umayyads that had gone into Europe and, you know, caused so much havoc. The Umayyad Caliphate had been based in Damascus, in Syria, but the Abbasids preferred and were based in Baghdad, on the banks of the Tigris, in Iraq, which is all the way back in Mesopotamia, where this whole thing began, with Enheduanna, the first named poet in history. And the Abbasids uh, had a great territorial reach, and they were in control of the silver in Afghanistan. They were getting their silver raw out of Afghanistan, making coins with it, and the Vikings were desperate for them, would go anywhere and do anything to get their hands on it. And so over a period of time, their longships had pushed into the south, into the east, and they got to Baghdad, uh, and they got to Constantinople, and heaven knows where else. I mean, I've often speculated, because of the nature of the way they travelled, I mean, these guys with their their longships, if they travelled up a river and it got too shallow, or they ran out of water, these big hefty guys, they just picked up the boats and carried them carried them and dragged them to the next river so if, if they were stubborn enough and persistent enough by that technique they could get anywhere I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were Vikings in China Vikings anywhere because they just they just kept on moving and they had developed the technology to, the, to enable them to do it so who knows but they were certainly in Baghdad they were certainly in Constantinople but by the time these Rus reached Constantinople. It was already half a millennium old, 500 years, which is in itself extraordinary. Muslims of the Umayyad Caliphate had broken themselves against the wall of Theodosius, which was you know, part of the legendary defences of Constantinople. At the same time, the others of the Ummah, the Muslim Brotherhood, had been chased out of Francia by Charles the Hammer, Charles Martel. You know, so, so by the time the Swedish Rus arrived there, the city is like, it's, it's so embedded. It's older than you know anyone can remember, and it, has, it already has taken on the reputation of just being as permanent as a mountain range. Nobody can conquer it. It's been besieged, you know, by Muslims and others, and it has never fallen. So by the time the, the Swedish Vikings are allowed in, it, it would have been like walking into something that had just always been there and felt like it was always going to be there. Now here's where we get back to the. To the, to the story that there came a point where Vladimir out of Kiev had grown tired of being a pagan now answer me why why do you get tired of being a pagan it doesn't really seem to make sense but that's how the story goes and so he sent out emissaries so imagine that they're, all, they're only there 
in that part of the world because the Slavs had sent people out into the wider world looking for somebody wise and strong to, to become their rulers. Well, having, having answered that call and become the dominant force, they in their turn send out emissaries. And this time, Vladimir has sent out his guys to go and check out the great faiths of the world, which is to say Christianity, Judaism and Islam. Because it's a bit like the X Factor or something. It's a bit like he wants to find the best. He wants to find the best religion and and take it for his own because he's run out of steam on being a pagan. So although they are they're Viking heritage, but by this point they're Russian. Yes, Paul, that's right. The great the great trick, the secret of Viking success was that they, they became the people that they arrived among. They had a skill for and they had a mindset where they would acquire the language. They would take on the dress. They would look like, sound like, dress like and eat like the people they arrived among. But still maintaining their intention to, you know, colonise and have control. But over, over through the generations, they just become French in Francia. Or they become English in England. And amongst the Slavs, they became Slavic. But they're still... They're still flexing their muscle. They're still they're determined to be in control. They enter the flock and just start looking like sheep, but they are wolves in sheep's clothing, and they they continue to dominate the flock. So one by one, according to the story, these uh, emissaries, you know, sent by Vladimir, they encounter the Jewish faith, and they say, okay, what's it like to be Jewish? What's this? What's the story? And so the Jews tell them, well, we've been driven out of our homeland. We are eternal wanderers. Frankly, it's a, a tale of never-ending woe. And the Rus are not impressed. Uh, they also find out that the, the Jewish people don't eat pork and that they circumcise their wee boys. Now, if you're not into that, that's a bit of a shocker for people who don't have circumcision as part of their tradition. So what, what one thing and another, you know, they figure, well, if their God has, has seen to it that they've been driven out of their homeland, they don't eat pork and they circumcise their wee boys, pfft, What's in it for us? So they move on. They move on from Judaism. And then they encounter Muslims. Uh, What do they discover? The Muslims don't eat pork either. And they circumcise their little boys as well. What is all this circumcision about? But even worse, the Muslims don't drink alcohol, which is a big deal for the Vikings. They like a a lot of skull. Skull, skull, skull. So they leave them behind as well. And then they turn up in Constantinople amongst the Eastern faith the Eastern version of Christianity. And they have their experience in the Church of San Sophia and they, well, they go back to Vladimir. No record is kept of what they said when they walked under the dome for the first time, but they they eventually end up back home and Vladimir brings them in and they tell about the Jews and they tell about the Muslims. Then they tell Vladimir about the Church of San Sophia. And he can tell, Vladimir can tell that they've been changed by their experience there. And he says, what is it? What is it about this? That this place and this faith and they say when a man has tasted something sweet he does not want anything bitter we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth for on earth there is no such vision nor beauty and we do not know how to describe it we know only that there God dwells among men now that's pretty strong they felt that there underneath the dome in the church of San Sophia was where God dwells among men Long story short, Vladimir says, right, that's it. That's it. 
we're going to be Christians and this this is the myth, this is the foundation myth that explains why Russia takes on the Eastern version of the faith of Christianity. When you snap back into reality, the more modern historians have suggested that given, given his place, given his circumstances, Vladimir may have been actually born and raised Christian. The real person may have been Christian from the get-go and only took on a veneer of pagan ways because he was riding both horses. He was like appeasing some of his fighting men who were pagan. Uh, so he, he, he acted pagan, but in his heart he was Christian. And then when he got the opportunity and when he was strong enough, he introduced his population to Christianity. But the myth is better. It's a more interesting story. And it's, it's definitely true to say that by the time of Vladimir and, and his successors, Christianity was all around the Slavs. You know, Christianity had seeped everywhere by then, like damp. You know, it had just crept across the surface, like by osmosis. Christianity was all around them, so it wouldn't have been an unknown quantity. But, and this is an important but, the, the version of Christianity that they encountered first, although it didn't persuade them, was the Western faith, the faith that came out of Rome. This is crucial, because when Vladimir for whatever reason, persuaded his people to take the eastern path, the the form of Christianity based in, in Constantinople and the eastern part of the Roman Empire, he set a destiny for his people for that part of the world. The Christianity that developed amongst the Rus, among in what becomes Russia, was Orthodox Christianity, the, the Christianity of the Orthodox Eastern faith. If he, at the time, had gone to Judaism or if he had gone to Islam, or if he had taken on the Christianity of Rome even, the world would have been an altogether different place. The world is as it is. Europe is as it is. Russia is as it is. Because for whatever true historical reason, they became immersed in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And that made all the difference. It's still powerful in Russia, isn't it? The... it? Well, it is. It's the faith. And it's a thousand years old. There's a distinct split between the Eastern and the Western faith. And when you dig down into it, it becomes, to, to well, to, to our eyes, it seems incredible that this was enough to split the faith. But basically, the Western church out of Rome believes with every breath in its body that God and Jesus are the same, or they are of the same importance. That from the beginning of time, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit were together. You know, hence the Trinity. Uh, you know, and in like the Gospel of John, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In that set of sentences, the Word is Jesus. He is the Logos. He is reason. He is truth. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the, and the Word was God. So for the Western Roman Christianity, they have equal importance. No one outranks the other. The Eastern faith, while it accepts that Jesus is the Son of God, it's predicated on the idea that there was God first, and then Jesus was his Son. And he is the son of God, but he's like slightly, he not, he's not God. 
he's, he's the son of God. And believe it or not, that's where the split lies. Because the Eastern faith says, yeah, he's good, but he's not God. He's the son of God, but he's not been there as long as God. And the Western faith says, no, they, they were all there all the time. That split the church. And it, it, it sounds like something, if you're not Christian and if you're not a person of faith, it sounds unbelievably superficial, but it's not. It's, it's absolutely foundational and it explains the split. And so while they're all Christians together, that schism, that split, that, uh, that, that separation between them, while it sounds like something you'd struggle to get a cigarette paper into, for a thousand years it has been an unbridgeable abyss and it has made all the difference. And had they gone with the West, all the power... Well, been... if, if they had gone, it would have meant that the centre of gravity for Russia would have been in the West... You, but the but the truth but you know the the truth is you know Russia well Russia's so huge Russia's eleven time zones from west to east I mean from St Petersburg to the Pacific it's eleven time zones yeah. it, it's in unbelievably vast but if it had taken the Roman faith its centre of gravity would have been Rome or, or the centre of its gravity for its faith would have been in Rome but the fact is its faith is in the east. And so Russia is both a, a European and an Asian entity. So it's, it's European because of its geography, you know, but in, it, but in its religious heart, the Russian Orthodox faith has, has given it a centre of gravity in the East. So that makes it Eastern in fundamental ways that make all the difference. Farmers, pastoralists and builders with extraordinary construction skills, a vast complex of structures rises over rich lands, soil deep, rich and fertile, rivers of gold and copper, a great trade network running up and down Africa's east coast with links stretching from Persia to China, and a stolen history. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter, my YouTube channel simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's brilliant, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. The social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy and the post-production by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.